Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Martin Barron, a longtime journalist and newsroom editor who ran the newsrooms for the Miami Herald and Boston Globe before taking over the Washington Post in 2013. His new book, Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post, is in part about that experience. I say in part because it also contains his insights and perspectives about the state of journalism and its future. I'm grateful to have him join us as the first guest in the Hub's new series, The Future of News, to draw on his extraordinary experience in the world of journalism and discuss where it's headed. Marty, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks. Thanks for having me. As I said in my introduction, I want to dedicate our conversation to the future of news rather than Donald Trump and your experience as Washington Post news editor during his presidency. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask something, since the book is chock full of fascinating insights about the period. So let me ask one question to get out of the way, and then we can move on to the bigger picture stuff that I hope to cover in today's dialogue. In the book, you write that BuzzFeed's decision to publish the Russia dossier in January 2017 was, quote, a big mistake. You also write that you regret the Washington Post's own coverage didn't reflect a a tougher examination of Steele and his work. What was behind the pressure that many felt to report on the dossier? Was it competitive forces, a consequence of lower standards by smaller players, journalistic one-upmanship, an aversion to the president, or or some other factors? And more importantly, what are the lessons or takeaways to guide future news decisions? Well, I mean, the way that this all sort of exploded uh, on the the political landscape was CNN initially reported that uh, Trump was provided a summary of the Steele dossier by James Comey, the director of the FBI. When that report was transmitted, BuzzFeed then published the entirety of the Steele dossier on its site, and everything just sort of broke open from there. Obviously, we couldn't ignore that. It became a political issue. Trump condemned BuzzFeed. He condemned CNN. And uh, we had to report on that. But the reality is that the the document itself was uh, not verified. And to this day, has not been verified these salacious allegations about Trump. Think what you will about Trump, but uh, ultimately at the center of our our mission as journalists, I believe, is to actually verify uh, information. But uh, everybody was chasing the information in there before that the publication of the document. Every we were we ourselves were all over the world trying to see if we could verify these allegations, and we were unable to do so, which is the reason that we didn't publish it. Once it was published, it became a huge political issue, and people had to report on it. And I think uh, some of those reports took as facts some of those allegations in the report and suggested that they were they had actually actually been corroborated when in fact they had not been. So I think that was a mistake for that reason. And uh, I think it was a mistake to publish the document in the first place, uh, given that we hadn't verified it and that we have as our first obligation as journalists to verify serious allegations against any individual. 
Okay, now we've gotten that out of the way. Let's start at the beginning. You write, quote, I joined the post at a moment of crisis when its commercial viability was in doubt and its capacity to measure to its journalistic heritage imperiled, unquote. What was the situation you inherited and how much of it was unique to the Washington Post versus a reflection of industry trends, including ones that you had encountered at the Boston Globe? Well, most of it was a reflection of industry trends, um, particularly for those news organizations that were focused on a region. And at that point, the Washington Post had as its strategy uh, to focus on the Washington metro region, which includes the District of Columbia, uh, Northern Virginia, and parts of Maryland. And so uh, that's what we were doing, and that's why we were suffering. So the industry is in, has been in distress for quite some time. Uh, the internet had uh, basically destroyed all the pillars of our our industry, and the Post was definitely feeling the effects of that. The situation at the Post was quite dire. We were every year trying to recover from, from losses, and so that meant further and further cuts uh, in the in the staff in the newsroom and in other departments as well. And so uh, it was a serious problem for the Post. We were, at least according to the accounts of many people, which were reasonable, we were sliding into oblivion. Uh, we were becoming irrelevant at a time when our relevance uh, was needed more than ever. About seven months after your arrival at the Post, Jeff Bezos bought the newspaper and set in motion what you describe as an effort to, quote, set it on a course of transformation, restoration, and growth. You were bullish on his arrival. You write, quote, the company had run drive ideas to salvage itself, and no one had a plan other than managing decline. Besides money, what did Bezos bring to the post and what were the key insights that underpinned his and your plan to restore it? Well, money was important, but I think ideas are more important. And the fundamental idea that he brought uh, was a change in strategy, uh, which uh, we've talked about just a bit. Uh, but that he felt that we had the opportunity to be nationally, even global uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, number one, we were based in Washington, uh, the capital of the United States. It's a good place to have a national and global uh, media institution situated. Number two, we had the name The Washington Post, which was a name that could be leveraged to a national and global level, unlike the names of a lot of publications throughout the country. Uh, and number and number three, um, we had a history and heritage going back to Watergate um, that, that meant that you know, there were millions of people around the country and around the world who had never read a word of the Washington Post and yet had an idea of the Washington Post. Uh, and that was that it was a publication that held power to account, that it helped bring down a previous president of the United States, that shined a light in dark corners. And so that was an opportunity. And he said the Internet, uh, which had destroyed all these pillars of our business, had also given us a gift. And he said, take the gift. And the gift was that we could distribute our journalism without having to deliver a physical newspaper, uh, only doing it over the over the internet, which meant that the cost of acquiring an additional reader or an additional subscriber was effectively zero. If I may follow up on your answer, how much of the focus on content, technology, and audience do you think is a universal way of thinking about the solutions to the challenges facing the sector? In other words, do you think the basic contours of your strategy are broadly applicable to the industry or unique to the Washington Post or other large legacy outlets? Well, I think they can be applied to other, other outlets. Uh, I think it's really important, first of all, to have a strategy and to recognize just how important the strategy is. Uh, when we talk about con content, that means, which is not a word that I particularly like, I like to call it journalism. But when we focus on that, it's like, well, what do our readers want from us? What do they need from us? What will fire their attachments uh, to us? Uh, what will engage them more than anything? We need to really focus on 
above all, what does the what does the public need and what does it want and what does it value? Then, of course, technology is it's had a hugely disruptive impact on our on our business. We've been we had been slow to embrace it, to even adapt to it. Uh, and what we need to do is not just adapt to it, but really embrace it and understand how we can use it to best effect. Uh, so that is that is really important. So all of those things are critical, I think, for every media outlet, uh, not just for the Washington Post. Uh, and we need to we need to stop resisting, for example, technology, and we need to embrace it. And too long we sort of delayed and resisted and grudgingly accepted it and minimally did what was necessary. And we need to just expect that our industry and our profession will be continually disrupted. And so that means that we have to act accordingly. That's just the way it is. And we can't rumble about it. Uh, we just have to, uh, we have to accept it and say, okay, how do we, how do we make sure that this is not a destructive factor? How do we make sure that it's a constructive factor and put it to best use? If I may stay on the point about being a legacy institution, the book describes some of the lasting features of the old business model, including unions, defined benefit pensions, etc. How much are those legacy features an impediment to longstanding outlets from modernizing themselves? Depends on who's uh, in charge, actually. So uh, there are many impediments. We've had many impediments. Um, I think the unions have, at times, been an impediment that they've resisted some of the changes that were necessary, have not recognized uh, how we need to create a sustainable business model in this industry, just how difficult the challenges are and how we need to change the nature of our work and how we need to perhaps reorder people's assignments within within a newsroom. But there have been other leadership issues, and that is uh, owners who have not uh, necessarily recognized what needed to be done, and maybe were seeking maximum profit when they should have been investing in the future of our industry, uh, in R&D and research and, and technology, and, and, and recognizing the dramatic changes that were taking place in our field. And the same goes for publishers and for editors. So leadership is actually is quite critical uh, to this, but it requires leadership on the part of everybody who's involved. So unions are one of them, but editors and publishers and owners are also uh, part of the picture, an important part of the picture. One basic idea that looms large in the book is the trade-off between relatively few subscribers paying a lot for print subscriptions to lots of subscribers paying fairly little for digital subscriptions. How do you think about those trade-offs? And more importantly, how do they change the nature of the business, including the form and focus of journalism? Well, uh, that was strategy for the Washington Post. I think uh, local and regional newspapers will probably have to have a different strategy, and many of them do. My former newspaper, the Boston Globe, charges a lot more than the Washington Post does and, and needs to. And, and that's fine. It's a substantial price, but you know, people are willing, enough people are willing to pay for it that they can create a sustainable business model. Uh, so I think the idea of subscriptions has been a huge benefit to us as a, in terms of the quality of the journalism. Uh, in the past, when we were focusing simply on traffic and clicks and all of that, uh, you know, we were using a lot of techniques that were that actually did fit the the rubric of clickbait. They weren't high quality. They just attracted people's passing attention. They generated traffic. They generated advertising via social media uh, networks, and and it didn't lead to it meant speed and 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 volume and all those kinds of things. Now with subscriptions, 
uh, the real emphasis is on substance and depth and uniqueness and distinctiveness and all of that. What are people willing to pay for? And what they're willing to pay for is something that's not a commodity that's sort of available everywhere and anywhere. They're willing to pay for something that is really special. And that means strong narrative journalism, strong features, strong investigations, holding government to account and other powerful institutions to account, uh, sort of a variety of journalism that offers something special rather than something that just offers that offers the same thing as everybody else. If I may follow up, Marty, what would you say to the argument that the subscription-based model tends towards more ideological journalism or more ideological content in the sense that readers want to read or engage content that affirms their own ideological assumptions and preferences? Well, I accept that people are drawn to media that affirms their pre-existing point of view, but I'm not sure that I see a distinction there between people going to free sites versus people going to paid sites. I haven't seen any evidence, maybe you're aware of it, but I'm not, that suggests that simply because it's a paid site, it's more likely to attract a sort of ideologically um, consistent point of readership. I haven't, I haven't seen evidence of that, and there are a lot of free sites that are highly ideological, and that's how they generate traffic, as a matter of fact. Another idea that looms large in the book is that the industry made a fundamental mistake at the beginning of the internet age to give its content away for free. You quote Bezos as saying that the challenge now is to put the genie back into the bottle 20 years later. What was the thinking behind that decision, and how do you overcome an audience that has been socialized to view news content as a free good? Well, I think it came about simply because uh, nobody wanted to lose out to their competitors. So uh, in local markets, people felt that if they charged and their competitor didn't charge, then the competitor would actually be the dominant source of news online. And so people didn't feel that they were in a position to charge. And they felt if they did charge, it would be self-defeating commercially. At the time, you know, the digital advertising opportunities were far greater than they are today. And so people felt that you could you could generate enough traffic online to, and it could be profitable simply based on advertising and that you didn't necessarily need to have subscribers. That led us down a, a dangerous path. And it certainly signaled to the public that, that they didn't really have to pay for news, uh, certainly didn't have to pay for high quality news. And we've had to, we've had to recover from that. And that is a difficult recovery. But I should say that, you know, there's still this, notwithstanding all of the subscriptions that are out there, all of the paywalls and things like that that are out there today, there's still plenty of freely available news, not all of it high quality, but some of it not bad. And people still feel. Uh, that they don't uh, have to pay for news. At least a substantial portion of the population feels they don't have to pay for news. And that's been brought about through social media, but also the fact that there are, you know, a lot of people who can create sites and they feel that they can survive strictly on the advertising or, you know, or something else. An interesting dynamic in the book is its generational commentary. On one hand, you write that a lot of more experienced journalists and editors lacked enough understanding of digital to properly plan and execute digital coverage of a news event. On the other hand, you dedicate a lot of attention to a younger generation of journalists who understand the digital world, but may be more prepared to break the rule of making news rather than reporting on it. Talk about these generational tensions and how they're playing out in the industry. Well, I think it's uh, different. We do grew up in different eras, and I think we have, in many instances, different perspectives. So when I grew up in journalism, 
there was reverence for these institutions. These institutions, what makes them institutions is they have a common set of standards and that people abide by those standards and, and they believe in those standards. Uh, and they think that those standards are important and that that's the right way to go about doing, fulfilling our mission as, as journalists. And the most, not only the right way, but the most effective way to fulfill our mission as journalists. I think with a rising generation of journalists, they have a very different view. First of all, they grew up in an era of social media where all of them were expressing themselves all the time on some sort of social media outlet. And they're accustomed to that. And not only that, they feel entitled to do that. They feel that it's part of their right and that they shouldn't have to be, as they put it, a different person at work than they are at home. And they're, they don't have the same reverence for institutions. And they feel that they speak more in terms of themselves as individuals, what they're entitled to do, how they feel, how they can express their feelings, how, why they should be able to express their feelings and their opinions, all of that. And so notwithstanding the fact that they've gone to work for an institution, that the reputation of that institution uh, was established by a set of standards that has been enforced and practiced over a long period of time, decades. In fact, they they feel that they feel those those standards are antiquated. And they also feel that particularly in the era of Trump here in the United States, that those standards are uh, inhibit the ability to tell the genuine truth about what's happening, what's happening in the country, and that those standards, they they have the view that those standards are antiquated. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday, a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. You use the word antiquated in the book. You also describe yourself as a traditionalist and talk about a chasm that you experienced at times with some post-journalists precisely on the question of standards. And in particular, the ongoing utility of viewpoint neutrality and the old ethic of objectivity. Talk a bit about those tensions within newsrooms these days. Is objectivity still a standard that news organizations like the Washington Post or the Hub, for that matter, ought to aspire to? Well, I believe in objectivity. I think the standard is still really important. I think that uh, a lot of the attacks on it are based on a total misunderstanding of the concept of objectivity in the first place. Uh, People have conflated it with false equivalence. They've conflated it with neutrality. They've conflated it with both sidesism on the one hand. On the other hand, journalism, that sort of thing. That is not what the concept was when it was popularized more than 100 years ago. And it's not what it really means. What it really means is that we all recognize that we all do have opinions, that we all have our life experiences, and that those things can be limiting. Uh, Part of the role of journalism, I mean, central to the role of journalism, is that we report Uh, That means that we get outside of ourselves, that we look beyond our own opinions, that we recognize that people may see things differently, that they have lived different lives. And so that we have to, that's the, that's the idea of reporting. I mean, if that's not what reporting is all about, then somebody, I've been living under a misimpression all these years of my career. The idea is that you get out, you you keep an open mind, you're willing to listen to everybody, uh, you listen generously, you you take what they say into account, uh, you do a thorough 
rigorous, comprehensive, uh, independent job. And then once you've done all that, you take account of what you've learned and you tell people what you found and you do it unflinchingly. But it, there's also and so it doesn't it doesn't require you to ignore the evidence that you've collected it doesn't suggest that you should do all this reporting and then at the end of at the end of the of all that work so say that well everything's 50-50 it's not, there's never been such a requirement it's it's a total mis, mischaracterization of the of the whole concept you know but it does require a certain humility in our part uh, which I think is necessary because the reality is that we as journalists are often looking at the world through a keyhole we don't see everything. Sometimes, you know, we're able to crack the door open and we can see a lot more than we did before. And if we're really lucky, if we're really successful, we get to swing the door wide open and we can see the entire picture. But we have to recognize that on most stories, we're starting with more questions than answers. Those journalists who start with more answers than questions are, I feel, doing a disservice to the public and a disservice to the truth. I want to move the conversation now more to the future of news, if that's okay. Yeah. Is there, in your mind, still a business model for large circulation newspapers and magazines that are fully supported by the market? Or are we going to instead see some mix of smaller niche players and outlets that are supported by a patron like Jeff Bezos or the Thompson family in Canada? And if you think the latter, is that a bad thing in your judgment? I think we're going to see a lot of different kinds of news organizations, so with a lot of different ownership models, and I think it'll be quite a mix. And we'll have to see which ones succeed, and it's quite possible that very different models will succeed, depending on their market, depending on their niche, depending on their community, uh, depending on their strategy, whether they're trying to reach a national or global audience versus trying to reach a regional audience. So as far as uh, wealthy individuals like Jeff Bezos, Thompson family, I mean, there aren't enough of them, frankly to sustain the entire ecosystem of journalism, that's for sure. There certainly aren't enough of them who want to put their money into, into journalism. Uh, you know, there's an old joke, what do you call a billionaire who bought a newspaper? A millionaire. So, <laughs> um, so many of them are not willing to take, that, to take that risk. And so we'll see other commercial enterprises. We will see, as we are now, the emergence of a lot of nonprofits. That's not a perfect model either. I mean, there's a real question, I think, there are real doubts as to whether there's enough philanthropic money out there to support the number of nonprofits that would be needed. I think fundamentally, we will have to come up with commercially sustainable uh, news organizations, and we're going to have to figure out how to do that. Uh, that's the only way. It is a challenge. It's not easy. I don't have all the answers. I wish I did. I could market it and make myself one of those rich, those billionaires. So uh, I think we will see a lot of different a lot of different models with a lot of different strategies. I think people will try to slice the journalism market in many different ways. Some will do it by subject categories, which they already are, and some will do it by geography. So some will be advocacy oriented and some will be more mainstream with the practicing, you know, the, what we were talking about, about objectivity and independence and all of that. And others will be more partisan. And so we will see a whole variety of news outlets out there, and we'll have to see which ones uh, which ones do the best. The U.S. news media has faced a lot of the same challenges as Canada, including the rise of so-called news deserts in different communities. I've seen one statistic, for instance, that 225 counties in the United States no longer have a local newspaper. But my sense is that it hasn't quite reached the same level of political attention as it has in Canada, where it's a major issue with the government introducing various policies to support the sector. What do you think might be behind the different responses between our two countries? 
Not entirely sure. Uh, I mean, I, it is an issue in the United States, but it's, it hasn't risen to the level that it has in, in, in Canada. Certainly, while there are people advocating for involvement of the federal government in all of this, federal government hasn't really gotten involved. There's been some legislation in Congress, but it hasn't, it hasn't gone through. Uh, it's probably, it's probably due to the different histories of the countries. I mean, the United States is very, it's very anti-tax. Uh, I can't imagine that a lot of taxpayers really want to see their tax dollars be going to support journalism that they don't even necessarily like. <laughs> you know, these are, the, we're not held in such high esteem, uh, as it turns out, by a lot of the American public. And, and do they really want to see their tax dollars going to us? I suspect not. There's, I just think there's historically in the United States, there's a feeling that government doesn't, shouldn't get involved in things unless it's absolutely necessary. Uh, we still have that tension in American society over some things that government today fundamentally does and people want to get rid of them. And so uh, I think that's the reason that it hasn't been addressed at the federal level. There are some states like California that have begun to do some things to help support local news and and special tax tax considerations and things of that sort. But there's a general skepticism toward the federal government in the U.S. There's a general skepticism toward toward spending tax dollars on on a variety of things and spending it on news organizations. I think would be in line for some pretty deep skepticism on the part of the American public. So that probably explains some of it. May I put one hypothesis to you to get your reaction? One of the inherent challenges with government providing support either through direct subsidies or the tax system or whatever is that someone ultimately needs to make a judgment about what news organizations are eligible. And given the state of American politics, it seems to me it would be challenging for the American political system to reach something of a consensus on which news organizations are, are eligible for some form of public support. Does, does that line of thinking resonate with you? Well, it resonates to the point that I agree. It's not which news organizations would receive it, but even what qualifies as a news organization. I mean, I think we would have a hard time defining exactly that. We, we can't even really define what who a journalist is. So how are we going to define what a news organization is? I gather in Canada, you've started, started to begin to do that. And I'm really interested. I need to dive into that further to really understand it. But I know that is something that we would have to confront in the U.S. And that would be a problem that a uh, challenge to overcome. We haven't even gotten to that stage. Uh, it's not as if anybody's really drawn up the legislation that would truly define it. I mean, yes, we have had some legislation and there are efforts at that, but there hasn't been a vigorous debate publicly and within Congress and, and other areas of the federal government over you know, who qualifies as a journalist, what is a news organization, which ones would qualify for some sort of uh, funding, that sort of thing. So we haven't, we haven't even gotten that far. What do you think about the argument that the situation has become a market failure that does necessitate a role for government or public policy? Do you think governments may need to step in to help the industry transition to a, a more sustainable model? And, and if so, what types of government intervention might you support? Yeah, honestly, I'm still grappling with that question. I'm not sure I have a real answer to that. I'm deeply worried about government involvement in our business. What government gives, government can take away. And I can imagine a government, particularly, let's say, one run by a particular former president who's now running again for the White House, who uh, would use that as a cudgel, uh, would use that to pressure news organizations. 
And I don't think we should voluntarily check ourselves to that kind of pressure. I would always want us to maintain our independence, the willingness to confront power, particularly political power. And I would be very nervous about government having having the capacity to either give funds or take away funds, depending on its view of the coverage it's receiving. If then markets are ultimately going to be responsible for sustaining the industry, how can editors and publishers protect themselves from market forces driving their journalism? We've always had market forces in our journalism. Can you tell me when we haven't? I mean, these have always been businesses. They were owned by some pretty wealthy people. And they were big companies at one point. They were in the United States. These media companies were making 40 to 50% profit margins. Sadly, they didn't invest that in their future. But, you know, we as an industry always express concern about, in other fields, about uh, monopolies and oligopolies. But, of course, that was our industry. We were monopolies and oligopolies, and we didn't seem to have any complaints about ourselves. So there have always been market forces. We've always had advertising. We've always had subscribers. I mean, it's when we were... We're more of a print business. Uh, it's not like most newspapers gave away their products. There were some that did. There were some free ones. But uh, most of the more substantial ones, they charged. Somebody had to get a subscription or put a, some money into a box to take out a newspaper or go to a, you know, a, a store and buy it. Uh, we didn't just give it away. Uh, so there were always market forces involved. And I don't think we'll ever escape market forces. I mean, even if you're a nonprofit, you've got market forces. What are the market forces? That you're, if you're looking for advertising, that's a market force. If you're looking for sponsorships, that's a market force. If you're looking for how to, how to generate donations, uh, that's a market force. So there will always be market forces. I, I don't know how in any, in any economy one escapes market forces. Penultimate question. You alluded earlier to the industry's level of public trust. What, if anything, should editors and publishers and journalists, for that matter, be doing to restore the news media's trust with the American public and publics in countries like Canada? Well, I think there are a few things that we can do. Uh, number one is that I think that we uh, we should show more of our evidence. We should do a lot more showing than telling. And that is uh, show people the evidence that's behind our stories. Um, if we're referring to a court document, uh, let's show people a court document. We have the capacity to do that on the internet. So, and annotate that court document, show people the exact phrase that we have and provide the entire court document so that people can read it for themselves and see that we're not taking it out of context. Uh, if it could be a court ruling, it could be a, it could be a, it could be a piece of evidence. It could be a deposition, you name it. Also the same with a video or an audio. Let's show the video. Let's show the audio. Let's show the whole video so that people can see we're not taking it out of context. Uh, let's essentially heavily footnote our stories. I mean, that's what you would do with links and things like that and, and, and produce our stories with the assumption that people won't believe a word we say. And we say, and instead we say, okay, you don't believe us. Here's the evidence. Look for yourself every single time in a systematic way. Uh, we don't do that today. Uh, we do that in a very limited way, but I think we should do it in a systematic and consistent way. Number two is that I think it's important for major news organizations and 
news organizations that uh, are local or regional uh, to to cover the entirety of their communities and do so with a certain empathy uh, for and an understanding uh, of the lives of everybody, regardless of what their views are. Uh, if people see themselves fully and fairly reflected in, this, in the coverage, uh, they'll be more receptive to uh, maybe the more highly charged coverage that we're obligated to do. And I'm not talking about covering people's politics. I'm talking about covering their lives and what their struggles are, what their worries are, what their 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 aspirations are, what their expectations are, all of that, you know, just show people that we we understand uh, what they're what they're living through. And it's really important that we not show uh, that we not condescend, that we not show contempt. Let's not prejudge people. So I think that's very important. And those are two things that 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 come to mind as ways that I think we can begin to restore public trust. I mean, we have to accept that there's a certain segment of society that will they simply won't accept facts. I mean, in the United States, uh, there has been a, a long strain, a historic strain of conspiracy thinking. That's usually about, uh, on any subject, 25-35% of the American public that believes, you know, let's say that the Holocaust didn't happen or that it was exaggerated or that 9-11 attacks were were executed by somebody other than the terrorists who who carried them out, or that vaccines cause autism, or that the 2020 election was illegitimate and stolen, it usually works out to about 25 to 35 percent on any one of those theories. And you can go back in American history, uh, in U.S. history, and, and, and see that this kind of conspiracy thinking has a long history in this country. But we should think about how do we get, the, how do we get an additional 5 percent to accept facts for what they are? Uh, and maybe once we've done that, think about another five percent. Let's do it at the margins. If you, if you, and I think there are people who are receptive to that. If they feel that you're not, if you're, if you're not just engaging in partisanship, that you're engaging in truly objective, independent journalism. And so, I think we should get out of our heads the idea that we're going to be persuasive to everybody, and let's start thinking about how do we. How do we earn the trust of another five percent, and then how do we earn the trust of another five percent after that? Near the end of the book, you write, quote, financial concerns are destined to remain a plague for the entire media industry, unquote. Let me wrap up with a two-part question. First, do you think there's a path to a sustainable journalism sector? And two, as you look ahead, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of news? I always try to be an optimist. I don't think we can afford to not be optimistic. And I have always said that I've never known somebody who to succeed by expecting that they were going to fail. And I've seen instances where we've turned things around. I mean, at the at the Boston Globe, when I was there, the New York Times company that was the owner at the time was threatening to shut us down. Uh, we turned things around and now it's a sustainable media organization. It doesn't mean it's a, it's minting money, but it is doing okay. Um, and it's doing good work. The Washington Post, people talked about it basically failing and sliding into oblivion. And we turned it around and we had, during my time there, six straight years of profitability. It has its troubles today, but I'm confident they'll get through that. The New York Times, you may recall, people were predicting that it would go bankrupt. Uh, its stock had fell from $50 a share to about $3.50 a share. And it had to get a $250 million in essentially financial assistance from a Mexican billionaire, Carlos Slim. Well, now the New York Times is doing extremely well. Uh, so I think we need to be very skeptical of media pundits who take one year's performance or two years performance and then extrapolate to say, oh, everything is terrible. I think we have a, a little bit of a sickness in our profession of always being pessimists and seeing the dark side instead of seeing the opportunities. But let's keep in mind that 
There are a lot of new news organizations that have started up, including at the national level and including at, and also at the local level, some nonprofits, some commercial, some that are working on venture with somehow venture capitalists have been willing to invest in this. They obviously see something. And, and so, you know, I'm an optimist. I look at major metro newspapers here in the United States and I see some successes. I'm in Boston is one of them where they're doing okay. Uh, Minneapolis is doing okay. San Francisco is doing okay. I see some nonprofits that have shown some real resilience and are doing really good work and also seem to be able to raise the funds that they need. That doesn't mean I'm not being Pollyannish. I'm not pretending that we that we've solved the problems or that uh, these these challenges are easily overcome. They are not. Uh, but I also think we have to recognize it doesn't mean just because something is difficult doesn't mean that it's impossible. And and so we should focus on the possible. And so I am optimistic. I see others, uh, you know, around the world that are doing some good work. I see some new news organizations that have emerged that seem to be pretty successful. And so we should look at that. We should learn from that. We should apply those lessons whenever it's relevant and appropriate for us. And, and fundamentally, I think that as long as we have a democracy, we will have a need for journalism. And I hope we hold on to our democracies, that's for sure, uh, because you can't have ju independent journalism without a democracy, for sure. But you also can't have a democracy without a free and independent journalism. That's a great way to wrap up the conversation. The book is The Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. Martin Barron, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. Please share this episode of Hub Dialogues with friends and family and leave us a review wherever you get your audio online. You can also go to our website, www.thehub.ca, to sign up for our free weekly newsletter featuring the best of The Hub's journalism and commentary. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolovsky Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.